Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza. Welcome to La Raza Chronicles. On tonight's program, we honor resistance, resistance in our airports, resistance on our streets, resistance everywhere. Crónicas honors resistance by talking to our Bay Area's own Nancy Hernandez, who was part of the Greenpeace team that hung a huge banner in front of the White House last week. We also hear from KPFA's Bob Baldock, as well as Larissa Chronicles' Nina Serrano, about their time with Fidel Castro. Now more than ever, we can gain strength from hearing from their own experience during and after the revolution. We also share with you music and poetry to keep you mobilized. All this and a calendar of upcoming events. Muchas gracias por estar con nosotros y estamos con ustedes. We are with you in this ongoing struggle for human rights, dignity, and to address the environmental destruction of the planet. Stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm sure that most people had a moment of inspiration last week where they got to open up their Facebook, open up their Twitter, open up Instagram, open up any kind of news service and see the beautiful resist sign hanging in front of the White House. A visual representation of what we're all thinking and what we all needed. I have on the line with us Nancy Hernandez, who is a longtime activist and organizer who has been doing community work in the Bay for since she was a youth, really. So she's holding it down for quite a while. And she was a part of this beautiful action. She's speaking to us from D.C. Thank you so much, Nancy, for taking the time to chat with us. Hola, Julieta. And hola, Cornicas de la Raza. I'm so excited to be broadcasting onto KPFA's airwaves. So much love for the Bay Area and for KPFA for always getting the stories of the people out there. Nancy, so talking about the stories of the people, oh my goodness, you did what seemed like was unmanageable. You did something with a group of folks that are equally committed and also putting their bodies on the line. So first off, you know, just tell us a, a little bit about some of the energy that you felt being a part of this action. How did this feel for you? Um, it, felt, it felt really scary to be so high up in the air, it felt really scary to be in a place where, you know, you think there might be snipers pointing guns at you and um, and you don't know what the response of people are going to be or what the response of the police are going to be. Uh, mostly, I feel like it was very empowering because uh, we got such a positive response from people who were on the ground. There were people standing in the street chanting, people brought banners and signs out, we were getting tons of high fives, even, even the crane operators from the other construction sites. We're coming out to cheer us on, sending us, you know, uh, high fives across the sky and uh, thumbs up. So because of the enormous response of people, we felt like uh, this was a really empowering action. And um, it got a lot of people to keep their heads up at a time when um, a lot of people had been feeling really down. Nancy Hernandez, you're part of this beautiful action with this huge resist sign at the White House. So Greenpeace was a big force behind this action. And you are someone who's been committed to environmental justice work for quite a while. You were stating rock. You connect a lot of dots in a lot of your work. So tell us about what brought you specifically to connect to Greenpeace on this action and also about some of the different forces that push people to, to act with Greenpeace. Well, you know me since since high school, I've been active in the East Bay and in San Francisco on issues of Chicano organizing, getting ethnic studies in the high schools, organizing around immigration reform and um, and environmental stuff. Because I, I grew up in Pittsburgh and went to Pittsburgh High, 
So I spent um, the majority of my youth in a place that we are we're surrounded by smokestacks from oil refineries. And then I moved to Bayview Hunters Point and um, similarly was surrounded by um, an industry that is very destructive towards the planet. So because of that experience, I definitely felt like the movements for social and environmental justice are completely linked and that we as people of color and as of organizers who are working on issues of equity also need to address issues of land and water. Uh, so yes, I was very honored to be a part of the actions at Standing Rock. And so when we began to get information of what was going to be signed in, into law this week, people decided to not just make it one specific banner that would be talking about one specific issue, but to unite a lot of different movements that um, have an intersection around social and, and environmental justice. So just like all of these movements are connected, all of those people who were up on the boom come from very different communities. We had me as a Chicana, we had um, a Muslim American young person, we had queer folks, we had an African American woman, we had amazing male supporters, and um, a woman also from San Francisco who is a part of the Greenpeace board locked herself to the ladder so that the police could not get to us. So because of the intersectionality of all of the activists who are a part of this, I think we all brought messages from our communities that our communities have been hoisting up, and we were able to project those messages above the White House into the world. Nancy Hernandez, so a lot of the way that you have connected dots is through art. You've told stories of different struggles and how they intersect through your art consistently. You've done that around the world, actually, through your mural work. So tell us a little bit about how having this visual sign, having this sign that says resist, that really people just projected onto there all their different ways that they're going to resist. Everything from the way they're going to fight to make sure young people feel safe, even if they don't have their papers in order, the way that they're going to fight to make sure that women have access to the reproductive care. Whatever that means, they're able to insert and take that message. So tell us about how visual art and how visual resistance has been such a key part of your life. At home, I'm a part of the Trust Your Struggle Collective, and we are a crew of muralist and visual artists who have taken on the task of visual translation of some of the people's social movements that are happening at home and across the world. And so as artists who have chosen to use our art forms as a way to tell the stories of the people, I felt like this action was a continuation of that. The banner that we hung was a hand-painted banner. It was 75 feet by 35 feet, so it was a huge banner <laughs> that took a lot of paint and a lot of time and a lot of collaborative effort. I've worked at the Estria Foundation and curated a series of 12 murals on water rights. So in that process, I was exposed to the idea of getting a ton of people together to take on a task that seemed huge, like a huge wall or a huge project. And I really learned about how art can be a tool for bringing people together and helping people to express uh, the counter-narrative of the stories that we're hearing dominate the mainstream. So I feel like art is definitely a major tool of the resistance and a major tool of, of the community in a, in a time when it seems more and more the community is being polarized by the messages coming out from the media. Nancy Hernandez, so right now we've you know, received notice that there's another executive action that 134 million people have been banned from entering the U.S. We've also heard about the moves to push forward that DAPL will, the construction will continue. And we're hearing all this news and a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed by what's happening at a federal level. You've done so much work on the ground in the Bay, working with young people, working with all kinds of issues. Can you tell us about how you feel that these 
these fights, whether it's to preserve sanctuary cities. Can you tell us about how people can really continue to resist on a local level some things that can feel pretty daunting on a federal level? Part of why I was excited to take part in this action and take part in hanging a banner over the White House at a time when an illegitimate president has taken power is because I feel like there is going to be a million different things that he does that we disagree with. And overarchingly, the media has been telling us to just lie down and accept it. The media has just been telling us, like, we just have to stop whining, stop complaining, and accept that he's the president. But I refuse to accept that this man is the best person that we as a nation could come up with as our leader. I think that we can expect better. I think that we can do better. And so I don't expect this man to be the president for the next four years. I don't expect people to just accept each one of these uh, executive orders that he's proclaiming as law. I think that most of the progress that has been made over the past eight years and over my lifetime and in the lifetimes before me came because of people on a grassroots level advocating for what they need and what they see as necessary for their future. And so as we have been pushing this country forward and forward and forward in the movements that people are, are waging and, and the struggles that people are fighting for, we have to defend those gains and not allow this administration to push us backwards. Nancy, Dan, there's something that's so beautiful about the work that Trust Your Struggle does that some of the groups that you organize do and that you do on a consistent level is to make connections and to see how all of our struggles are connected and united. So when you were on the front lines and when you were working in Standing Rock, I'm sure that you ran into a lot of other Chicanos from all over that were making connections to sovereignty and to indigenous land and the need for people to have control over their land and also to avoid and fight against imperialism continuing to happen on U.S. soil. Can you talk to us? Shout out to the Chicanos that are standing rock. Yay, because I'm sure, you know, that's the thing. We, you're connecting these dots. People are connecting these dots. How do you see that fight in connection to the fight that you've been such a strong leader in, in terms of the fight against gentrification and the mission, the fight against displacement, the fight against, you know, the basically the pushing out of, of community groups and community organizations and, and people who have strong roots in making the Bay Area what it is? Well, definitely. I mean, shout out to Pacifica Radio, shout out to KPFA for consistently providing young people growing up in the Bay Area with access to information. I feel like that and all the resources that have been invested in me have definitely instilled within me a moral compass that tells me what is right and what is wrong. And that, um, you know, this, this older generation instilled in us the idea of solidarity and of alliance building and of coalition building and that um, our struggles are linked together. So I think that the activism that I was a part of as a young person developed within me the view of the world that the things that are important to us are land and life, and that is what is worth defending. So each time, you know, a decision comes up or an opportunity comes up or a confrontation comes up, I have to look at that and, and decide, you know, is this something that is going to benefit the people on the planet or is this something that is detrimental? And so when jobs are offered to me, that I could make good money at, but I would have to pollute the atmosphere, or when jobs are offered to me that might not pay as well, but I know I'm doing something good. You know, my moral compass shows me that capitalism is not the highest power, that profits are not worth more than people, 
And so if we can just, you know, continue to develop this, I guess, counter-narrative within young people in the Bay Area, I think that that is what we have to contribute to this country. That is what we have to contribute to this world, which is a higher contribution than just the taxes that we pay. It is uh, the development of young people who see land and life as something worth protecting and worth defending. That's the voice of Nancy Hernandez. She was recently involved in the action that I think lifted all of our hearts and spirits. And I think, you know, I work with young people and a lot of them just couldn't believe it. And that for me was that that for me was beautiful that they were just awestruck. You know, it gave them a better sense of what is possible. So we're talking about the action of the giant resist banner that Greenpeace and many activists were a part of bringing up to hold in front of the White House to really hold accountability for what is happening and to hold all of us accountable that resistance is a daily struggle. It's something we do consistently. It's really one of the only things that we have to commit to doing on a daily basis. So Nancy, for all the young people that right now, you know, I work with a lot of undocumented students, a lot of students are are feeling fear because either their families or you know they themselves have felt repression in home countries and they're wondering what's this crackdown going to look like what's going on what are either steps or tools or words of advice you have for folks that are feeling like resisting sounds great but I feel like I have so much to lose and I'm at, I have students that tell me why should I go to school what's the point you know where I'm going to be you know deported so I think right now is a time that that's why your action was so so timely. But what are words that you have to share with young people that are feeling overwhelmed? Well, I do think that this banner was dropped um, on top of the White House and was a clear message to this administration. But moreover, I feel like this banner was a message to those young people. I feel like this banner was a message that we're trying to communicate to all the folks who are feeling fear, who are feeling the impact of hatred on them. And our, our message definitely is to that community. I work with young people every day. A lot of them came in the day after the election in tears and very upset, scared that their families would be separated from them, scared that they would be not able to communicate with or see people who have raised them. And um, because I saw that fear in them, I felt like this action would be a way that I could face a huge fear of my own you know, being 300 feet up in the air and connected with just a couple pieces of ropes. And by us getting up there and being able to face the fear of death, being able to face the fear of repercussion, being able to face the fear of incarceration, I hope that that resiliency shows to those young people that, yes, there are scary things ahead of us, but we have to face our fears. And if we do it together, we will survive this. The group of us up there, African-American, Muslim, queer, straight, white, Latina, all of us were connected by ropes that connected our lives that kept us safe. And that is the same thing, that the same message I would like to send to those young people in the streets is that the networks that you have, the ties that you make to each other, those are our lifelines. The government is not our support system. The government is not our safety net. The communities that we are involved in, the communities that we participate in, the communities that we grow up in, that is our safety net. And that is where our strength comes from. So when, when people feel fear, maybe they can think about, you know, what that banner looked like hanging above the White House. Maybe they can think about all the different things that we can do in ways to inspire others and face those fears. Because I feel like unity is our resistance to the divide and conquer tactics of this administration. And we have to focus on that. So Nancy, people want to be a part of this and people want to continue resisting and they will. But what are some ways that they can also support Greenpeace? So I've definitely been overwhelmed with all of the offers of support to help bail us out and to help with our illegal costs. And I want to say thank you to everybody who's offered that. We have that covered. 
what what the call is is not to ask for financial support for any of us or any of what we're doing. The call is to ask everybody to respond with their own acts of resistance and their own acts of of action. And so we're asking everybody to step up. If it's if you're an artist, step up your artwork with politics that are relevant to the community. If you are a community worker, we're asking you to mobilize your people. Um, if you are, you know, a tech worker, we're asking you to use whatever tools you have in front of you to help defend the planet and the people. And so if everybody could go onto the Greenpeace website, there is a place where you can pledge to resist. And we're asking everybody to contribute ideas and information and things that they are doing in their own lives to resist this illegitimate administration. Nancy Hernandez, we are so thankful for you, the work you do day in, day out for actions like this one. And we're so, so happy that you're safe and sound and that we don't need to print up some free Nancy t-shirts over the you know, over the weekend. <laughs> that, that wasn't hard to do. And we're just so happy that we can... We can have this as a constant reminder, and the banner may not still be up, but those photos can never be taken away. We'll always have them, and we'll always have all the power and strength that we've gotten from your bold acts of resistance. So, muchísimas gracias por hablar con nosotros from DC, safe and sound. She's not calling us from a prison cell. She's she's free. So, we're so happy to have you with us. Muchísimas gracias, Nancy. A ustedes, gracias por escucharme. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. My guest today is Bob Baldack. For the last 30 years, he has been producing events for KPFA, live events, and in the process has created over 400 posters of those events, making for an enormous social history of our wonderful station. Welcome, bienvenido, Bob, to La Raza Chronicles. Muchas gracias, Nina. So wonderful to be here with you. You recently, at La Peña, at a celebration for the life of Fidel Castro, made a presentation about your own experience with the Prime Minister. Could you share that with us, please? I'd be glad to. I'll just set in reading it uh, straight from the copy that exists. My commentary is dedicated to Kathleen Weaver, poet, author, translator, The Wings of My Heart. From early March into August of 1958, I was a member of Fidel Castro's 26th of July movement. I was a combatant. I want to say something about Fidel that I believe is not much known at all. We all know about Guantanamo Bay Naval Base, the U.S. military compound, prison, and torture facility located on the southernmost shore of Cuba, where the Sierra Maestra meets the sea. Rising high over that shore is Cuba's tallest mountain, Pico Torquino. High on Pico Torquino, near La Plata, some 60 years ago, there was a hut, a bojillo, where something really remarkable occurred. That hut had wooden plank walls, thin ones, and a thickly thatched roof. For at least one of the months I was on Pico Torquino, this hut served as hospital and jail together. Our wounded or sick fighters were taken there to be cared for. The critically injured, those needing surgery, were kept separately. Wounded rebels, along with captured Batista soldiers, wounded or not, were kept together in this hut. Life there reflected some of the extraordinary thinking of Fidel. Our own wounded or very sick fighters were bedded side by side 
with enemy soldiers who'd in fact been sent in patrols up the mountain to kill us. As far as I know, this was unique even for a civil war in that it revealed both Fidel's strategy and his humanitarian heart. It also must have reflected the long year he himself had spent in prison, following a 15-year sentence suspended after that one year. I'm certain Fidel's compassion toward enemy prisoners was also bolstered by some of his long conversations with Celia Sanchez, his primary personal confidant in the mountains, and with Heidi Santa Maria, whose thinking always showed her compassionate nature. Both women were essential to Fidel during all the months I was with him. Almost everything was discussed with them. He listened avidly. Equally essential was Fidel's very close friend and personal physician, Dr. René Vallejo, an older guerrilla who in fact had served in the U.S. Army, and fortunately for me, spoke excellent English. He invariably took evening meals with us and kept a protective eye on Fidel. In those five months in their company, I never once saw a single instance of Fidel acting out the impetuous Caudillo, the solitary big man. He was incontestably our leader, unquestionably the most valued individual there. When food, for example, was in short supply, the women always made certain Fidel got at least an egg or two to accompany the omnipresent malanga and rice. While he was frequently in touch with Che and Raul, in another front altogether, many hours away in the Sierra Cristal, Fidel's own inner circle, present on Pico Turquino, supported Fidel's expectations of us when we were in that rustic shanty that was hospital and jail. Any of us who spent time there were fully expected to simply comply with Fidel's wishes. We always did. Dr. Baehu told me that most of our guys understood the strategy of deferring to soldiers, of showing them neither contempt nor hostility, but respect and kindness. After all, they were also Cubans. They were all young, those I saw in the long week and a half I had in that hut. Late teenagers or in their 20s or very early 30s, a few of them, often illiterate, sugar-field campesinos or workers from small tobacco farms who had uh, enlisted in Batista's army simply to earn a puny salary for their families. These foot soldiers were never the career military officers perpetrating psychotic crimes against Cuban students, workers, and other citizens. These young inductees had been told that the rebels in the mountains were vicious, criminals, torturers, eaters of human babies. Some of the soldiers we captured believed this, or appeared to. We were expected to help correct the propaganda they'd absorbed. We were expected to help them comprehend that we not only cared about them, but that we wanted their lives and their families' lives to become much better. We tried to assure them that was indeed our reason for being there. They'd been sent out from their forts and garrisons in small expeditionary groups to climb high into the mountains and confront civilians, wajiros, making skimpy livings on very small, scattered farms, just to get information about us. They'd been ordered to kill any of us they encountered, and, of course, they expected the same of us. Once captured, they were usually exhausted, held at gunpoint, trying to restore their breathing and their composure. Most were openly terrified. Some started weeping. Their weapons and backpacks were confiscated immediately. As soon as they were brought into the hut, their boots were taken away. 
There were no beds. There were a few cots. There were at least eight hammocks, hoisting one above crawling insects, except for the large tarantulas that nested in the roof thatching. These were to be killed on sight. A tarantula had earlier bitten Fidel, although not in that hut, swelling his left forearm massively, rendering it limp for many days. The captives were always given the available cots or hammocks. Our own wounded slept on bedrolls or mildewed blankets on the floor. Food was scarce. When there were only a few eggs or a wood-grilled portion of mule or burro that had fallen or been shot, it was offered first to captives. We also gave them cigarettes. We reduced their terror. We sat beside them. We put our arms around them. We gave them abrazos. After all, we felt for their plight. We were capable of tenderness, and we were proud of it. There was a roof holding out rain. The oil lamps worked. In that place, the enemy seemed so amazingly like us. There was a guitar. The same songs were known by most. Increasingly, there was singing, and then laughter. White or black or more often mixed blood, no importa. We were all young, energetic, astonishingly together, high in the mountains. After a few days of their captivity, we released uninjured prisoners. They'd be given their boots, led to a trailhead, given instructions how to return to their units. We kept the weapons, maps, ammunition. Eventually, they found their way back to their garrisons, most of them anyway, where they had stories for their friends. By mid-August, basilary dysentery had taken away one-third of my body weight and nearly all my energy. I had become useless, if not yet a distinct liability. One morning, following many hours of talking together, Fidel told me he was going to get me to a hospital for treatment, an authentic hospital, one in Miami, Punto. He didn't want me questioned in Havana. Who knew what might happen? I was to leave the next day, escorted by two of the compas. That afternoon, Dr. Vallejo helped me tell Fidel how profoundly I believed in his ideals and how much I loved him. That very fall, mere months later, Fidel brought his outfit together with Raul's and Che's frente, and they all began moving down the mountains on the 700-mile thrust toward Havana. I heard that they encountered surprisingly little resistance from the garrisons and forts along the way, not even from the Air Force tracking them from above. I heard that the 26th of July ranks swelled considerably with enthusiastic volunteers, many of whom had only recently discarded army uniforms. Viva Fidel. Siempre. Siempre. You just heard Bob Baldak of KPFA. Thank you. Oh, my pleasure, Nina. I'm so glad to be able to get across what sometimes other people do with enemy soldiers as opposed to what this country's been doing. Well, it's an amazing, amazing story. How did it happen that you were with Fidel? How did you join up with the 26th of July? Well, uh, I was working until I got laid off in the recession in a rubber factory in Akron, Ohio, and I went to movies and they had newsreels, and one of these newsreels was about the guys in the mountains in Cuba, and I was fascinated, and I contacted a friend who had grown up in Guatemala and said, you know, what do you think? Should we go there? But before that happened, I I went to New York, 
basically, I got a job as a copy boy for the New York Herald Tribune. At that point, a very good paper. And uh, I got to use and look at the maps and so on. And we decided to go. We hitchhiked. Once we got to Cuba, we made our way south, somewhat very covertly, in fact, because, well, it was a terrible journey. I mean, Batista had bodies hanging on so many of the utility poles and telephone poles going down the central highway, and they were being eaten by critters and so on. And uh, by the time we got to Bayamo in Oriente, we met up with someone who had some contact, and we said we, we wanted to go there, and we were carrying press passes, so we were allowed up. And Actually, it's, it's sort of startling how easily we were brought into the unit and my own training and ROTC for a couple of years, the only two years of college I've had, stood me in good stead. And when I saw what was going on and really saw, really felt it, I wanted to be part of it, just that. And you were. Yes, I, oh, yes, I was. Well, it seems like you're always carving out a piece of history, both in Cuba and here at KPFA, where you've made 400 posters documenting our social history. You're also a painter, isn't that true? I, I, I paint, yeah. I, I, I don't talk very much about it. It's not that. But I've been painting for, I don't know, 50 years, I guess, yes. Mm-hmm. And did you do any drawing while you were up in the Sierra Maestra? No, none whatsoever. No. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, I didn't. Well, we're very proud that we have a beautiful black and white photograph here in KPFA of you as a handsome young man next to another handsome young man, Fidel Castro. <laughs> he is 10 years older than, than I was. But it was, it was an amazing circumstance that, in fact, you know, my, my own father was a uh, an engineer of many trades and was away much, much of the time. We rarely had supper together. This occurred to me a few months ago that Fidel was, in fact, not just a mentor, but he was the first male that I regularly had suppers with every night for months. <laughs> and we were close. Well, it's been an honor to speak with you. It's been a pleasure. Muchas gracias. This is Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. In continuation of our reflections on the life and celebration of the life of Fidel Castro, I'm going to read you what I wrote at La Peña as part of that celebration. 
It was 1968, after the summer of love, and San Francisco was blooming with flowers in our hair, hand-painted cars, the streets strewn with hearts left behind, and the echo of militant marchers, hell no, we won't go, to the imperialist wars in Vietnam, with a milder suggestion of make love, not war, and insight. No Vietnamese ever called me a nigger. I was packing my suitcase to go to Cuba, carefully folding a delicate pale green chiffon gown suitable for meeting a head of state. I never got to wear that gown. Instead, I wore jeans, a T-shirt streaked in dust and mud, drenched in sweat. My then-husband saw Landau, who has since passed, may he rest in peace, was heading a film crew for a local public TV station to interview Fidel Castro for a few hours, and then he arranged to bring me and our two children, Greg and Valerie Landau, ages 13 and 10, respectively. We were the tagalongs, along with the brilliant cameraman editor Irving Seraf and the reluctant sound man Stanley Cronquist. Upon arrival... That two-week plan was turned on its head when, like all other world journalists, we found that it was all about waiting for Fidel, an international subject of many later articles and books. Fidel had his own plans for us, finally revealed after weeks of waiting at the hotel to begin filming, came the long-awaited phone call. Be ready tomorrow to fly to Oriente for a week. Bring the film crew and your wife. Sorry, you can't bring your children. Fortunately, while Saul and the crew were out killing time shooting Havana street scenes, I was making friends. Maria Rosa Almendros and Estela Bravo. It was the unstoppable Estela who pulled strings and had our children enrolled immediately in a young pioneer camp in Oriente province. After our family farewell to the children, we took off for Fidel's private plane, the interior like a living room. There he was, welcoming us big as life and history, surrounded by his chiefs of staff in army fatigues, all veterans of the guerrilla war of 1957 to 1959. I was surprised by Fidel's high-pitched voice. Rene Vallejo His friend and personal doctor, who he had already met, was there, too. Fidel said, We're off to Oriente to review the progress and talk to the people, so much better than receiving reports. I noticed I was the only woman. We were picked up by a caravan of waiting military jeeps, Fidel, the driver, and Saul in the first jeep. René Vallejo, the cameraman and his bulky camera, the sound man in his heavy sound gear, and me, who was all tangled up in the connecting cables around my legs. We bumped along dusty rural roads, Renee's gun rubbing against my hip in the intense heat. I realized I was in a man's world. I'd never had any contact with the military. My father was an artist. "'You're the first woman to travel with the Cuban army,' Renee commented." This became very clear when I had to pee. The whole caravan stopped as a military escort took me to the appropriate bushes 
and stood guard. René Vallejo told stories about the guerrilla warfare that had taken place in the territory we were traversing. After the triumph, it was his job to go to the deeply entrenched United Fruit Company headquarters, who owned enormous holdings of fruit plantations, and tell them they were now nationalized by the revolutionary government. A daunting task. He did, and they soon left under protest, although today they're asking for fiscal compensation. Every night we would camp. The soldiers would cook and set up comfortable tents. Fidel had his own. Our crew's tent held Saul, me, Irving, and Stanley. After dinner, Fidel would talk. No one ever interrupted, though they might laugh or make audience interjections, except for Saul, who had the express mandate to ask probing questions for the camera. When we arrived at a town or a factory or farm, Everyone would come pouring out, filled with glee and excitement. Fidel would ask and answer so many questions. He spoke with everyone everywhere and probed every complaint until he got to the bottom of the problem. Was the problem that your little community needs a paved road or that you're just too small to grow enough food to feed yourselves? And anyway... These roads are so bad to get here that a truck would be destroyed. What you need is to create a larger community, leave your thatch boios, and move into a collective farm. No, they would argue back. We'd miss our animals and way of life. An aide took notes. Usually, Fidel wound up saying yes, no matter what his personal opinion at the factories, he talked to workers by machines, listened carefully, commenting and suggesting. He loved agriculture and cows. We would stop at his various pet cattle breeding places to check on his favorite dairy cows. He gave his rapt attention to their handlers, milkmaids, and cowboys. He loved the people, and they showered him back with love and revolutionary enthusiasm. It was the time of Los Diez Millones Van. Let's make the ten million tons. That was when the whole nation sacrificed and volunteered extra labor to meet and support the impossibly high sugarcane harvest quota. Revolutionary spirits were high. Looking at the map... Saul realized we were now near the young pioneer camp our children were attending. Fidel easily agreed to our suggestion that we visit it. The camp had been described to me as a model place. I was alarmed when I sat on my son's bed and could feel the metal under the thin sleeping mat. The food, too, seemed like prison rations. My little daughter was distressed and homesick, but they urged us nonetheless to leave them there while we finished the filming. They, too, felt it was important to document the revolutionary experience that they were now learning about. Anyway, it's just a few more days, my son said. After a few action-packed days, there was finally an informal moment when I could ask Fidel why he invited me to come along since I wasn't an official part of the crew. After all, he had never met me. Or was he doing it as a suggestion by René Vallejo? No, he said, admitting to a very sentimental nature when it came to marriage. He said he didn't think married couples should be separated. A year later, 
when we return to show Fidel the final documentary film called Fidel, he invited us to a private viewing of the highly anticipated broadcast of the first moon landing. He was very excited about it. I was not. I saw it as a violation of the moon, an imperialist move by earthlings. Fidel was also very concerned about Jacqueline Kennedy, who had only recently become a widow. I was surprised because the late President Kennedy had allowed the invasion of Cuba at the Bay of Pigs only a few years before. But once again, it was his sentimental view of marriage and his view that couples should not be separated. At the end of the moon landing broadcast, Fidel's question to us was, it says sponsored by Tang. Does this mean that without the product called Tang, there would be no moon landing? This has been Nina Serrano for La Raza Chronicles. The following songs were by Bay Area favorites Soltron.
coming from all of the freaking gunning that's making us keep on drumming because we're fighting for something that people will keep on ducking. Why's it gotta be until it happens to your cousin? These last few tracks were by Sortron from San Francisco's Mission District. immigrant children. Bienvenidos. We are deeply sorry that our tax dollars, controlled by corporate elites, drove you from your family and your homeland. We open our hearts, our arms, our nurseries, our schools, our playgrounds, our sports fields, our youth programs, our after-school programs for your healthy development for your growing minds, for your creative spirits. Welcome, children. May you find safe beds, affectionate adults to guide you, nutritious food, toys and tools to stretch your imagination. Children are born to be happy. May you fulfill your dreams. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas, and this is the calendar of Bay Area events and happenings for the week of Tuesday, January 31st through February 14th. From now till February 26, the Mexican Museum presents a new exhibition called Fascination with Fauna, 
the portrayal of animals in pre-Hispanic art, featuring art from the museum's renowned pre-Hispanic collection. The exhibition will communicate the significance of animals in nature, religion, society, art, to three cultures from early Mexico, the Nayarit, Colima, and Zapotec, Central America, and Peru. With more than 2,000 items in their prehistoric art collection, guests can expect to see some of the finest examples of pre-Hispanic art in the world. The Mexican Museum is located at Fort Mason Center, Building D, between Marina Boulevard and Buchanan Street in San Francisco. For more information, go to mexicanmuseum.org. From now till February 11th, the Mission Cultural Center presents Exist and Resist. The center opens its doors to the artistic community to express a reaction to the presidential election of 2016. Faced with the rhetoric of fear, division, racism, misogyny, intolerance, and populism from the elected government, artists from the diverse communities raise a voice, validating our right to exercise the First Amendment. The Mission Cultural Center for Latino Arts is located at 2868 Mission Street in San Francisco. MissionCulturalCenter.org From now till April 2nd, Studio Grand will be hosting a Sunday dance class on Afro-Peruvian culture. In these workshops, we will be learning about the dance and musical forms of African descendants in the coastal region of Peru. Hosted by dance instructor, educator, and choreographer Carmen Roman, she will take you on a journey of unique blend of African, Spanish, and indigenous elements. Each class will be held on Sundays from 2.30 to 4.30 at Studio Grand in Oakland, 3234 Grand Avenue. For more information on the classes, go to studiograndoakland.org. For the weekend of February 3rd through the 5th, Brava Theater presents the 5th Annual San Francisco Son Jarocho Festival. The festival explores the folkloric music style of Veracruz and honors musician, cultural worker, and 2016 NEA National Heritage Fellow Artemio Posadas with a weekend of live music, dance performance, and community activities. Featuring Grammy Award-winning band Quetzal, Son Jarocho singer, poet, and master of the string Harana, and founder of international acclaimed group Mono Blanco, Guillermo Gutierrez, and fellow Mono Blanco member and master singer, musician, and dancer Gisela Farias Luna. The Brava Theater Center is located at 2781 24th Street in San Francisco. Times vary for each event, so please go to their website, brava.org. For Saturday, February 4th, Join local Bay Area bands Bang Dada and Locura for a night of cumbia, reggae, rock, and hip-hop. This is at the Rickshaw Stop, 155 Fell Street in San Francisco. Starts at 9 p.m. Rickshawstop.org. And this has been a list of events, Cultura y Arte, for the Bay Area. If you would like to add your event to the calendar, please email us at larrazachronicles at kpfa.org. Or for more information on our show, go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash La Raza Chronicles. Feliz noches! You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. 
If you'd like to get involved with our collective or have stories that you think should be covered, you can email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. If you'd enjoyed this program and you want to share with a friend, you can find our archives on soundcloud.com slash lajasachronicles. Muchísimas gracias por estar con nosotros. Buenas noches. Thank you.